This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The Prime Minister, as you heard in Bob's News, announced that the CERB will be extended for another eight weeks. And while this is good news for thousands of Canadians who have no work to go back to, there is an increasing backlash against the way it's happening. And it's hard to believe that this is actually a minority government facing a confidence vote tomorrow. The proposal likely falls short of what the NDP was demanding, and the Conservatives have made it clear that they will not be supporting the Liberals unless regular sittings of Parliament come back. And it's not just the opposition that's angry. The McDonald laurier Institute's latest policy paper is called COVID's Collateral Contagion, Why Faking Parliament is No Way to Govern in a Crisis. And author Christian Luprecht argues that the extraordinary measures employed by the Liberal government demonstrate an unprecedented disregard for parliamentary convention. And it's a time of unprecedented federal spending and restrictions on our freedoms. And it seems that the government has outmaneuvered parliament and it's also refused to provide a fiscal update saying that was impossible. And that claim was roundly disputed here on this show last week by none other than the parliamentary budget officer. And meanwhile, other countries with parliamentary systems like the UK, Australia, and New Zealand have continued to have functioning parliaments throughout the pandemic. So what do you think? Is, is this an issue or is it just so much inside baseball? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, uh, for CEO of Variety Village and former Toronto C- uh, City Councillor, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hello. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. Okay, everyone is present. Uh, before we get to this whole question of what's happening up in Ottawa, I'd, I'd like to start with Karen. And yesterday on this show, we were talking about the easing of restrictions for visits in nursing homes. So I gather you are ready to see your dad. I am ready to see my dad. And uh, he's in a retirement home, so a bit of a different environment. But nonetheless, uh, it's been in lockdown since the beginning of March. So I haven't seen my dad my 90-year-old father, since the beginning of March. And even though we talk on the phone, it's not the same. And I'm really looking forward to seeing him. And what's uh, what's the story? Did you get tested? And, and what's the protocol? I did. I, well, I read in the newspaper that the uh, a, a negative COVID test done within the last 14 days was required. So I still haven't received notice from his retirement home, whether that's a requirement, but I wanted to err on the side of caution. And I went on Friday and uh, got my COVID test. Uh-huh. And uh, do you have to bring some proof or are they going to trust you where you, I think, attest? 
No, I have to bring some proof. And so uh, they do, I, you can, they're supposed to email me, um, but also there's a, you can log on because I got it, my test done at Sunnybrook. So there's also a chart I can log on to and then get my, have my proof that I tested negative because I, I don't think they're going to take my word for it. So I asked all those questions just to make sure <laughs> that my two and a half hour wait in line and subsequent test would actually help me get to see my dad. <laughs> okay. Well, we're, we're glad that you're going to see your dad and, and uh, there are some restrictions uh, in, in retirement homes, not as restrictive as, as in long-term care homes. Are you okay with the rules? You know, I, it's been hard. There's no, I understand why they've been imposed, but, uh, it, you know, my dad has his own room, and so the risks are uh, not as, as great as in a long-term care facility when there's two or four people sharing a room. And he doesn't have, he has some caregiving, but, uh, you know, it's, it, there's no question it's been hard because caregivers can go in and out, but I, I can't. And um, I'm his only child and only family. So that has been very hard for me to reconcile, no question. Okay. Um, Karen, all the best. And uh, we want to hear how it goes. Absolutely. Okay. Now let's uh, get to the meteor things. Um, There's a confidence vote tomorrow. John Capobianco, is the Liberal government uh, playing fast and loose with Parliament? Well, first off, let me just say how delighted I am to hear about Karen and the fact that she went through all that process. Good good for you, Karen. And and hopefully... Everything goes goes well. When you see your dad, I, I can imagine the phone calls are just not, not enough to see someone in person. So I, I wish you well, and I wish him well as well. Um, but uh, with respect to, to, to your question, no, Libby, I look, you know, it, I can assure you with almost 100% certainty, although I would never give that, but 100% certainty that the government will survive. Um, I think the NDP, you know, is, is smart in some ways to sort of say, you know, uh, extend uh, SERP, as, as we saw at the Prime Minister this morning, do that, uh, or else, you know, we will withdraw our, our support uh, for, for you. But um, it, it, the political posturing that that's created, because no one believes that, that anyone's going to defeat the Liberal government at this stage of the game when, when quite frankly, the NDP don't have the resources to be able to fight an election. Uh, the Prime Minister is at 60-70% approval rating, uh, and you've got a, a Conservative Party in the middle of the leadership campaign um, not least of which the, the bloc would, would not support that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's political posturing. But again, it gives uh, Jagmeet Singh some airtime, uh, as we've seen. And he's, got, he's been, you know, in front of the news, uh, in front of the TV stations over the last little while, professing to say that, uh, you know, uh, we're going to withdraw our support of the Liberals if, if we didn't do it. But there was no question that the Liberals were going to extend it anyways. I think that it was the right, prudent thing to do, given the fact that there's still a lot of anxiety amongst people who still can't find work. Uh, and the fact that they were able to do it for the two more two extra months, I think, is going to be helpful and should get us through and should get a lot of folks through um, a, an anxious time, which is between now and, and the middle of summer, when, when it's generally hard to find jobs anyways. Uh, before we move on to Charles, is, is your party justified, John, in saying that they're not going to support the Liberals unless they have a proper parliamentary protocol? Well, you know, and, and Andrew Shear, I think, has been consistent on this from the from the get go. Doesn't matter what phase we were in uh, of of the, of the pandemic. I think early on, when things were just uncertain, you know, we're t- I'm talking sort of mid March until until April, when when everybody was just you know watching TV and and, and anxious about everything. Um, I think that you know people in, in the, the opposition parties, including Andrew Shear, allowed the prime minister to do his things and and allowed for them to make some of those tough decisions. 
when they needed to, needed to be because they didn't want to delay it. But I think as things are coming down now, I think there's more and more um, folks out there and, and, and political leaders saying, you know what, now it is the time to be able to go back and, and do at least some form of parliament uh, in, in, in some way, shape, or form. So I do think that at least Andrew Scheer has been consistent with that, without, uh, with that demand from the very beginning. And, and of course, he's not going to support the Liberals on this kind of stuff. I think as an opposition leader uh, and as the official opposition, you have to oppose the Liberals on certain things, and he's been pretty consistent on that point. Uh, Charles, is that a fair criticism that uh, the Liberals have been subverting parliamentary tradition, certainly, and just ramming too many things through and not uh, letting us have a sufficient look at things like what this is all costing? Well, let me let me first say, if uh, Karen's dad is listening, we love your daughter. We think she's the greatest. She keeps us honest, and she is so looking forward to seeing you. Um, I hope he's listening. Hi there. What's the federal government's been working on this on the extension of the serve for some time now, and the reality of the situation is, by the first week of July, millions of Canadians will come to the end of their 16-week eligibility period to claim uh, the serve. And so um, it, it's, uh, it was a given that something had to be done, given the sheer number of people that are still um, not back at work and not likely to return to work anytime soon, just given the current state of the pandemic. I mean, you have to remember that there are 4.75 million people in Ontario alone who are still in stage one, and that includes folks in Toronto, folks in Peel Region, folks in Windsor-Essex. Um, the good news is that 1.2 million have already exited the CERB um, before maxing out on their eligibility um, because they've either returned to work or they've qualified through their via their employers for the uh, Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. But there's no getting around the fact that as of June 4th, 8.4 million Canadians had qualified for the CERB, and that constitutes $43.5 billion in spending. That is a lot of money, and it speaks to the overall cost of, to the economy of the pandemic. Yeah, uh, but what, what I'm asking about, Charles, is is the way it's gone through. I mean, should they be getting back to Parliament now rather than governing by fiat, basically? Oh, no, that's nuts. I mean, like the, the temporary House of Commons is a ridiculously small space. The notion of cramming 338 MPs in there in the midst of a pandemic is, is just blinding stupidity. Well, I no, think no, no, most we were, rational we, people recognize that, No one you know, is talking about putting them in all putting them well, that's all what the in. conservatives are talking about Libby they're demanding a full return to the house and in the case of a vote you would have in the case of a confidence vote you would have all 338 people there but they aren't even now, having many virtual sittings they're having committee sittings that's correct they're not yeah, having it seems to be working quite well and providing yeah. some degree of accountability and but the conservatives want a full return to the house they recognize the political advantage that's to be had by having the whole kit and caboodle back, conveniently ignoring that we are in the midst of a pandemic. Karen? Well, I'm going to disagree with Charles just a little bit uh, in that, you know, I I think that every single employer and and Variety Village included has has had to figure out how to be creative in order to reopen. And so, you know, we're doing a number of things, taking steps so that we can offer camps in July. Uh, And so, you know, I, I think there is a point where Parliament has to show its creativity um, beyond virtual meetings on how it's going to reopen, because that sends a signal to the rest of the country around how the rest of the country should be considering reopening. And 
you know, and it sends a message too to um, people that that you know maybe. Uh, inclined to stay on the CERB as opposed to take a job, that it is safe to return to work, albeit under certain conditions. And so being able to lead by example and setting those conditions and being able to return to work safely, which is what the Prime Minister says he wants for the people of Canada, I, I think it's in his interest to be able to demonstrate what that looks like. And to your point, Libby, parliaments around and governments around the world have figured out ways to meet in person. And as I said, you know, even my own experience, I have Zoom meetings with my team. It's not the same as being able to connect with them and figure out these problems and figure out solutions for how we're going to function. So I think the time is right for Parliament. And if they can't meet at the building because of it's not enough space, then it's, you can find another space. But I think it does send an important message around uh, sitting, a sitting parliament, making decisions, particularly of the magnitude that they're making, that are extraordinary by all by everyone's agreement. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, um, again, the parliamentary budget officer, uh, you know, basically said not so because they were saying, "Oh, we can't give a fiscal update or an estimate; it won't be accurate." And he sort of said, "Take your best shot. We have all kinds of tools available to make a pretty good estimate." John? Oh no, I, I totally agree, and, and I'm shocked at Charles's response. Quite frankly, I know. Charles has always been pro democracy and, and, and for and for um, uh, for him to support the, the sort of the liberal government's you know continued uh, uh, call for for, for not, not even to be as, as Karen said not even to be somewhat creative in, in coming back or at least at least increasing some of the some of the discussions and some of the stuff that has to happen I think is is quite frankly just irresponsible and I and I and I do agree I think you know Ontario is doing it well and. and they're, they're being able to manage it, and, and other jurisdictions are as well. There is some level of creativity and some level of saying, okay, you know what, if we can't have everybody back, let's increase the level of, of commitment we have with some of the committees, and let's, let's increase certain things that we can do as a parliament to ensure that people have a voice um, without, without compromising certain things. And I think, as I said, early on, there was no question uh, when, when people were, were at, the, at the highest of anxiety uh, and and we didn't know how how dangerous this this virus was and, and and you know we're talking early on in March and April there was no question nobody wanted to even remotely talk about that kind of stuff and that was right but there is a time now when when the provinces are opening up and the prime minister is now talking about recovery um, that that there should be some level of of you know being able to have a bit more of a demo, democratic parliament uh, discussions especially because. You know, you're now starting to talk about you know budgets and and other issues that that involve and have to involve some opposition input, and I think that's that's important. And and for the government to say that they can't do an economic statement is just bunk. Uh, you, you saw Ontario, uh, you know, Minister Phillips do it, and and yeah, you know what? Maybe the numbers might not be as accurate because they might not have all the tools and all the necessary numbers because they change on a daily basis. But to be able to give some level of a summary of what's going on and how much it's been spent and who's been getting it and what's going on, I think is, is, is something that's needed, quite frankly. And, and Canadians would want to see that. Uh, and Charles, I mean, there there was a lot of criticism when the prime minister waded into that very large demonstration. I mean, it's like he can go into a demonstration that has thousands of people, but parliament, oh, that's too dangerous. Well, I mean, a one-time appearance at a demonstration for a cause that is top of mind for most Canadians and Americans is one thing. Daily appearances in the House of Commons on the part of dozens, hundreds of MPs is 
quite another. And the hypocrisy of the situation is breathtaking. I mean, what the Ontario legislature is doing is very akin to what the House of Commons is doing, which is reduce schedule of sittings, reduce number of members in the legislature, a lot of stuff being done by um, by virtual means. And, and no one's saying boo. I mean, the opposition parties in Ontario can't even bother to make a fuss about it because it makes such perfect sense. Listen, when it comes to transparency in terms of the numbers, people have a reasonable sense of how much the pandemic is costing the federal government. The federal government has been fairly upfront about that. The great unknown is how long this will continue. The great unknown is, will there be a second wave that will cause further retrenchment of the economy? I mean, there are a lot of unanswered questions. The government has been quite forthcoming with the numbers, but the the entire economic situation is still very, very difficult to gauge. And I can appreciate the opposition wanting the government to come forward with one set of numbers so that six or eight weeks from now they can say, you got it wrong. But it's just games. Okay, uh, we're going to move along to other topics. I'm going to take a call from Lily, who has been waiting patiently. Hi, Lily. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just want to encourage people, please wear a mask. My cousin died last month of COVID. So sorry to hear that. Well, she was in a home, and the caregiver had it and passed it along to all the residents, and she suffered two and a half weeks and died on her birthday. Oh, no. And the family couldn't go in. Oh, that's horrible. I'm. I. Oh, please wear masks. Ninety percent of the people in London are not wearing them, and I hear the same thing in Toronto. COVID is still here. Lily, take care, uh, and uh, our condolences to your family for having to go through that. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. Uh, so here is a situation where in Montreal. Cote St. Luke, which is a small suburb, they have made mask wearing mandatory in businesses and government buildings. And the onus is on the business. If you allow people who are unmasked, the business will get fined. You're not going to go after the person. Guelph has done something similar. And here in Toronto, every time I talk to a mayor, they say, gee, that sounds really interesting. I don't know if I have the power to do that. And, uh, you know, part of the problem is at the beginning of this, we were told, nah, masks don't do a thing. And, and now we're seeing studies that say that is the biggest factor in preventing transmission. So what should we do, Karen? Well, I think there's no question. I mean, the message from to date from the province has been uh, maintain your physical distance if you can't wear a mask. And that's been translated differently as uh, employers reopen. Uh, so I know a number of retailers along Young Street have signs saying, please wear a mask. And I think the TTC took the very smart and necessary step to t- advise uh, TTC travelers to wear a mask because physical distancing on a bus is not always possible. And as ridership increases, it will become increasingly difficult to maintain that social distance. So I think that there has been movement uh, in that direction. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge is when you think about um, a grocery store, um, if the grocery store is going to require all people coming in to wear a mask, if they don't have a mask, does the grocery store supply the mask? Uh, or do they turn them away? And so th- those are those are the issues I think that are um, that are 
you know, uh, grocery stores seem to have figured it out. I, yeah. I, I've been to two where they require a mask, and I believe that yes, they do turn you away if you don't have them. Mm-hmm. If they're out, they sort of said we'll we'll have extra masks for a little bit, but after that, it's up to you. And at another one near here, they you can buy one if you don't have one. Um, but the rest of places, no. I mean. Yeah. There are places that say we need you to wear a mask, but they don't do anything to anybody who doesn't want to. Yeah, and I think it's one thing if you have a controlled business environment where you have, like, my staff coming to work, my staff will wear either a face shield or a mask, and that will be a requirement of coming to work. But um, people that are, you know, eventually using the facility to exercise, um, I, what, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to manage that because if you come in to exercise, it's hard to wear a mask and exercise. And so those are the things that I think um, employers are struggling with. And certain scenarios make it lend themselves more easily to, to requiring a mask and monitoring the wearing of a mask. Other situations are more complicated. Charles? Uh, I hate wearing masks. They're hot. They're uncomfortable. They make it hard to be heard when you're talking. And I do it, right, because it is uh, common sense at some level. But I I will say this. I think if we do see a second wave in the fall, you're going to see a lot more uh, cases of mandatory wearing of masks. The one thing that is absolutely proven is that they stop the spread of contagion. Well, and that is, uh, and, and that is, well, they don't, they don't stop it, but they greatly reduce it. But, and, and so it's just a common sense provision. So I suspect we'll see more, not less, if, if COVID is back in the fall. Well, it's, it's, there's mandatory and there's mandatory, John. So there's mandatory, like we're going to see on the TTC, mandatory, but no consequence. So I guess there's a bylaw. And there's mandatory where if you're not wearing one, you can't come in. Yeah. Well, and I do, I, I do agree with Charles on this one. I think with respect to the, if there's a, if there's a, a resurgence of this, uh, it's going to be almost mandatory for sure. Um, it, it, I think it just, it's almost impossible for a city like Toronto to have, to have the mayor sort of mandate everyone to wear a mask. Um, you know, I think by and large, Ontarians have been really, really respectful of, of government direction on, on most things throughout this pandemic. Uh, when it came early on to social distancing, you know, you saw a couple of small, uh, exceptions here and there, but by and large, Ontarians, I think, have been, you know, hugely responsible, which is a result of us being able to come back and even talk about reopening uh, now in mid-June uh, in, in, some, in some regions, except, of course, except for Toronto, uh, York, and, and, uh, and or sorry, Peel and, and Windsor. But, um, you know, I, I, I think people are starting to see, I, I'm certainly seeing it in my local Sobeys, I had it, had it right from the very beginning, where they, they basically said you have to wear a mask. Uh, then they had an attendant uh, who would wipe down the cart before you uh, before you uh, enter the enter the place, uh, and and I think they did it right from that perspective. I'm seeing more and more people here in my condo building, quite frankly, would be with masks more so now than I have over the last couple of weeks. So so I think Ontarians are are starting to get the picture. I think the leaders. Uh, you know, Prime Minister and others um, are are sort of dictating that that masks are important. Health officials are as well. So I think more and more people are going to start doing it, but I don't think they're going to mandate it to a point where you know the, the mayor will say everybody has to wear it. I think businesses are starting to do that, which is smart. Um, and the TTC, as Karen alluded to, as well. So you'll start seeing institutions and others start to do it, and and that'll kind of cause most people to just start wearing masks. Hopefully, uh, let's take a call from Marilyn in Mississauga. Hi, Marilyn. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I would just like to say that um, I was working since the beginning of the COVID because we're essential services. 
and we're in communications. And our company has implemented wearing a mask, having your temperature checked every morning. And if you refuse to wear the mask, then you can go home. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a consequence. Well, yes, because uh, if somebody is sick, then the whole company has to shut down. Well, e- exactly. But I guess it's it's easier to mandate when you're employing somebody than if somebody is, is coming into a space where they're a paying customer. Yes, I agree. But yes. you think, would would you be okay with that if you had to wear a mask basically wherever you went? I would be fine because I really do not want to get uh, this COVID. I, I'm 69 years old and uh, it's scary. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your call. You're quite welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so we have a bit of reopening. Uh, we have the bubbles starting, uh, which I, I gather has caused a, a great deal of anxiety. You know, you do, who do you ask to be in your bubble? You have to be uh, monogamous to your bubble. What if somebody <laughs> turns you down? They, the, you want them in your bubble, but, but they already have other people. Uh, how is, how is that going, Karen? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I was thinking about the Ashley Madison campaign. Do you want to cheat on your bubble? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it's certainly in my circle, uh, we, there hasn't really been a discussion about a bubble. We just continue to keep our social distance. And so that it hasn't really come up. I, I you know, certainly, um, I, you know, I look forward to seeing my mother-in-law and uh, giving her a hug. Uh, but by and large, I, I, I think that uh, the the simplest thing for, you know, for many people is just keep your social distance and then you don't have to worry so much. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I've seen a few people, but I haven't hugged them, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and it would have been legal before. I mean, one of my best friends came over for lunch in the backyard and, and she didn't want to hug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I haven't hugged my brother yet, though I've seen him. And yeah, it's, 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 it's like that. Have you, have you guys been dispensing hugs to a wider circle? Those are boys. Maybe they don't hug. They, <laughs> well, John's, I, uh, John's, John's I, Italian. Like, I, he probably hugs. That's true. That's true. Hugging my, your my daughter. My Italian heritage, you know, I'm, I'm a hugger, by, but just by nature. <laughs> and uh, so that was, that was a huge thing for me not to be able to hug uh, friends and uh, and family, but no, I, Karen's bang on on this. I think you know, and it's interesting, and I'm glad that obviously the, the premier and, and making sure that that is part of the the you know extending and, and allowing people sort of to to get out there and, and meet and, and you know and socialize. You know, still have some level of restrictions uh, with it, but but I I'm like Karen. I don't think I've you know I still see friends. We social distance, um, and um, I don't think that the social bubble. Uh, concept of, as much as it's important that it's there there's restrictions but i think people are just being responsible and, and most in most cases i think 99 percent of the cases of being responsible and, and if they are having backyard gatherings uh it's very limited and, and it's social distancing and, and um and i've been the one where people were wearing masks so it's it's you know i think people are still being very responsible 
Okay, wear a mask and have a hug that way. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, we are starting to run out of time. Before we go, I'd like to uh, get your take on the way that we're reopening. We've had a, a little bit of blowback from, you know, people who are on the border between one area that's open and one that's not. Are the businesses like a hairdresser going to lose business? Charles, uh, is, is it being done in a way that's fair? Are people going to suffer? Well, it's no fun for for people who are still in stage one, which is, you know, nearly five million Ontarians, more than a third of the population, because, you know, such is the relative side of size of Toronto and Peel region. But full credit to the premier for one, taking the, 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 the safest possible approach to reopening and two, more importantly, resisting the siren call of what's effectively right wing populism, because you look at what's happening in the U.S., And it's a disaster. They had 25,000 new cases of COVID on Saturday alone. That's a quarter of the total number of cases that Canada has had since March. uh, It's amazing how the pandemic has seen through a partisan lens in the United States, where if you're a Republican or if you're a Trump follower, then this thing is a hoax. You're a coward for wearing a mask. Reopen the economy damn the consequences. And the result is North Carolina, Texas, Utah, all saw record hospital admissions um, this past weekend. Um, Some states are putting a full pause on reopening because they've realized um, that they have a disaster that they've unleashed. Um, It just goes on and on. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Oklahoma, all record numbers this weekend for new cases. Louisiana, an early hotspot, 1,200 new cases on Sunday alone. And these are all Republican right-wing states where governors said, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about this thing. It's just, uh, it's overblown. And as a result, they've got 120,000 deaths on their hands. And I won't be surprised if those numbers double by the end of the year. Okay, yeah, but we, that's that's certainly not the situation here, though Ontario is a hot spot, as is Quebec. Uh, so just uh, before we go, Karen and, and John, what about the way we're reopening? Yeah, I, I, you know, to echo Charles's uh, comments, it's a cautious approach. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we'll get to phase two in the next couple of weeks. And, um, you know, but there's no question there's been hardship. There's been hardship throughout the entire, pro- the entire country has had hardship um, as we've been struggling to deal with this. And so, you know, I still think that there is an opportunity to be more strategic in how we manage um, outbreaks because they are localized. It's not, it's not all of Toronto. It's, it, it's pockets of Toronto. It's not all of Peel. It's pockets of Peel. So, you know, I think that there is an opportunity to be more strategic in our rapid response to COVID outbreaks. And I think we need to hone that response going into the fall because, quite frankly, Libby, we cannot do this again. Just closing down the economy for an indeterminate period of time um, is not something that we can contemplate in the fall. So we need to be smarter and we need to be testing more and we need to be more strategic in how we manage this. John? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I think the premier has been has been doing this quite quite well, and I think, like like you know, a lot of people would expect he's been listening to the health uh, healthcare professionals and authorities, basically saying do this in a way that's responsible. I think the the premier is also looking at it from a more of a long term perspective. If he can sort of get things going now slowly, uh, hopefully, the, if there's any uptick in and resurgence in the fall, Ontario will be one of the provinces that, that will be least affected by it because he took such took such care and. 
and caution and, and opening up the economy, especially in the, in the biggest uh, areas where, where the, some of the numbers are still north of 200, although although declining quickly. So I do think we're going to see a Toronto opening up a bit before Canada Long Weekend, but but I think it's, it's the right approach for sure. Okay, uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much Thanks to our crack strategy panel, Karen Stintz, Charles Bird, and John Capobianco. Talk to you next week, if not sooner. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.